What is up? How we doing? Everybody good? I just want to tell you, I'm not going back to my church. They don't welcome me like that. I'll tell you that right now. Well, hey, uh, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors at Hope City Church, and I'm so pumped to be here with you guys today. I've been looking forward to this weekend all summer, and uh, just so grateful that Josh is able to get away on sabbatical, and I'm just honored uh, to be here. If you don't know our story, my wife and I moved here two years ago this weekend, actually, uh, to start Hope City Church. And uh, we kind of started having informational meetings toward the end of 2015. And then all of basically three-fourths of 2016, we met here at Mercy Road on Sunday nights. And uh, so this church means a lot to us. And we launched public services at the Ritz Charles just west of Meridian Street um, here in Carmel on September the 18th, I believe, 16th or 18th, I don't even know, um, uh, in 2016. And so we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, and I'm just so excited. So our church is hugely indebted to, uh, to Mercy Road and all that you guys have invested in Multiply Indiana and in church planting. And so thank you guys so much for having me. As I was kind of thinking about being here this weekend, I started thinking about all the things that unite us, and there's really a lot more things that divide us than unite us, if you really think about it. Uh, I know that we say there's a lot more that unite us than divide us, but that's not how we live, right? Just look at Facebook, okay? Like, just scroll through Facebook, not right now, uh, but scroll through Facebook, and you're going to see a lot of divided people, right? People argue over what, they're, what food they're eating, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-dairy-free. We kind of, you know, pitas all up in our grills about, you know, eating animals. And, and you just can't go on Facebook without getting a political post or a religious post or something reminding us of everything that divides us. But it's not just social media that tries to pull us apart, right? Like every aspect of our life, our, you know, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the clothes that we wear, the tax bracket that we're in, the neighborhoods that we live in, our religious views, all of those things try to define us, and ultimately they try to, um, to bring definition to our status in this world. While they try to give us social status, those same things really um, alienate us at times and allow us to feel disconnected and polarized and separated from other people. But as I was thinking about that, there's nothing more polarizing than an elementary school playground. Nothing will divide you quicker than an elementary school playground. I don't know if you've experienced trauma on the elementary school playground like I have. Thousands of dollars of therapy have been given in my life to helping me overcome the social awkwardness and alienation of an elementary school playground. Think about the person that you made fun of the most in fifth grade. You got that person in mind? Because it's me. Okay, that's, that, that was that person. I played high school basketball and college basketball, but in fifth grade, I was the most socially awkward and the most unathletic person in my school. And I got made fun of constantly, and I got picked last for about everything. And the three games that I think brought me the most pain and trauma and hurt and therapy are three games that you're all going to be familiar with. Dodgeball, kickball, and tag. I got picked last for kickball every day, right? I, I went out with high anticipation only to be picked last. It's like, okay, there's the girl that picks her nose and eats it, and then there's Justin. Who wants who? Okay, that, that, was, that was the defini defining moment of my life, right? I struck out in kickball. How do you strike out in kickball? If you strike out in kickball, you, you should not, I mean, it's, just, it's just not good, right? And then I hated dodgeball too. When I was in fifth grade, I don't know why we did this. I, I, I grew up in Crawfordsville. Maybe, that's a, that's, maybe this is why. And... Um, 
And I grew up in Crawfordsville, and our elementary school, when it rained, they didn't want us playing dodgeball on, like, the grass because it was wet, so they put us on the basketball court, asphalt basketball court. And in fifth grade, I, my knees got hit in a dodgeball game, kicked my legs out from under me. I face-planted into the basketball court and knocked my front tooth down my throat. Now, I grew up really poor, so my parents didn't have a lot of money to get me to the dentist immediately. And so my friends started, not my friends, people started calling me Bucky. Some, some of you are laughing. It's fine. Okay, that's fine. I'll pray for you. All right, at the end. And so I just hated dodgeball. And, and, but tag was one of my least favorite games because there, there's a couple ways that you can play tag. You can play tag in a way where one person is it, and as they tag people in the class, those people become it too. And then they start trying to tag other people, right? And so there's like this, this mob that, that in the last person that is actually tagged actually wins the tag game. And we played that sometimes, but the predominant way that I remember us playing tag was that one person was it. And it was usually the coolest or most athletic person. And they started tagging people. And those people were immediately eliminated. And they had to go sit on the sidelines. Right, if we played it in the gym, you'd start full court, and then you'd go to half court, and then you'd go below the free throw line. If you played it on, you know, out in the playground, you had like a perimeter with pylons that you had to play in, and then the, the pylons would get closer. I don't think I ever made it to half court. I know I never made it to below the free throw line. Because I was one of the first people tagged. I just, all I remember about tag is sitting on the sidelines and watching the game play, watching other people enjoy the game. Well, I could not figure out how to not get tagged first, how to not get eliminated early. And I think if some of us are honest today, we look really good on the outside and we come to church and we sing the songs and we have a relationship with God. But if we're really honest, we feel like we've been tagged, not in a game, but spiritually. Right? Like we, we feel like we have been eliminated from God's best for our life, from the plan that God really had for our life through our mistakes, our past, our regrets. We, we look at other people's life. You just scroll through Instagram, you scroll through Facebook, and you see God doing these amazing things in other people's lives. You're like, God, what is up with me? What did I do to you, God? Why can't I make an impact like them? Why can't I be used like, by, like them for you, God? God, I'm, I'm doing the right things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm in a, an outpost. I'm doing all of these things, God. Where are you? And so we just sit on the sidelines, observing the eternal impact other people are making with their life, wondering when it's going to be our turn to play again. When are we not going to be eliminated? When is God going to show up in powerful ways for us? And so if you're there today, can I just say that you're not alone? That so many people, and even people who have done amazing things for God, once felt like God was done with them. But that's not how God works. God doesn't eliminate us. He reconciles us. One, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible is the story of Moses. There's so many leadership lessons from Moses. There's so much rich content from the life of Moses so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3 here in just a second. But one of the things I love about Moses is he was extremely successful. He was an amazing leader. He had an incredible heart for God. He did an unbelievable thing. He stood up to a tyrant, and God used him to free an entire nation from slavery. He was responsible for getting the people of Israel to the promised land. 
But before Moses was the successful leader, he was an insecure person. Before Moses was this incredible, you know, unbelievable person that was used by God to do great things, Moses was a failure. And I think that might be why I resonate with him most. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to look at three lies that I think Moses believed about himself that you and I are tempted to believe. And then we're going to end with three truths that help us experience the second chance that God has in store for us. Okay, so let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 together. It says this. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land, up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I practiced that all week, all right? And I freaking nailed that, all right? I just crushed it, all right? Even if I didn't, you wouldn't know, right? You wouldn't know. All right, where was I? I was bragging on myself. Verse 9, okay, here we go. And the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way, of the, Egyptian, the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. You know, so many of the songs that we sing are they revolve around this idea of grace, right? We have, you know, this amazing grace song. We, we sing it so confidently. But what you believe to be true about grace will determine the extent to which you experience it. What you, do, what you truly believe about grace will impact the level of grace that you can receive in your life. Not because Jesus didn't die to give you the fullness of his grace, but because what you believe to be true about it will either set you free to experience it or it will limit your ability to experience it. And so many of us, I think, we place a lid, we place a cap that God never intended on his grace, and we prevent ourselves from experiencing the John 10, 10 life of life and life to its fullest. Not because God is punishing us, but because we don't truly believe that amazing grace is for us. I mean, we, we say we do, and we sing that we do, but we live as if we don't. We live as if we have to earn something. We live as if we have to prove something. We live as if we have to get on God's good side to ever do anything incredible for him. See, a lie believed as though it were truth carries the power of truth in your life. I want you to think about that statement for a second. A lie believed as though it were true carries the power of truth in your life. And for so many of us, we have a difficult time believing what God says about us, and so we don't experience the life that God has for us, and we wonder why God is holding out on us. God, through his son Jesus, gave us everything that we will ever need to experience, not just heaven then, but heaven on earth now. And our belief system, our convictions, what we believe to be true about God and true about grace will determine the amount of grace and the amount of freedom that we experience here on this earth, whether or not we'll experience heaven truly touched on earth, that transcendent life where God is present every single day. For many of us, we don't believe it's for us. We would never say that out loud. It's just kind of the, the hidden part of our heart. That's for people in the Bible. That's for pastors. 
That's for missionaries. That's for people who give a lot of money. That's for people who can do great things. That's for people who are uber talented. And so what I want to do is I want to look at three lies today that I think Moses experiences in this passage that you and I are tempted to believe every day that keep us from the second chance, the other chance that God has in store for us. And the first is this, your failure is final. If you want to believe a lie that's going to keep you from God's best for you, you, you need to believe that your failure is final. It's interesting in this passage, God, God like does some pyrotechnic work, right? Like before pyrotechnics, God like shows up. If you know the story of Moses, he shows up in a burning bush that doesn't burn up. And that's impressive enough. But then he speaks to Moses audibly from within the bush. And Moses immediately recognizes that it's God, but Moses is unfazed by the, how amazing this miracle is. He's like, okay, I'll take off my shoes that's awesome, God. I realize that it's you. I'm on holy ground. And then God starts speaking and God starts calling him to something greater than what Moses is experiencing. And Moses shuts God down. You know why? You know why Moses shuts God down in this passage? Because Moses knew something about himself that he did not think God knew. Moses knew his past. Moses knew his failures. And Moses knew his mistakes. If you go one chapter back in the book of Exodus, right before this amazing miracle where God is calling Moses in a very unique way, unlike any way that he's ever called anyone else before or since, Exodus chapter 2 tells the story of Moses' past. Verses 11 and 12, it says, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, because that's how sin works, right? Like right before we sin consciously, we kind of look to the right and left. We check the browser. We check, you know, check with our friends. We make sure that our parents, we make sure that our wife, we make sure that our husband isn't watching. And then we just kind of go with what we're going to do. It's exactly what Moses does. Moses kills the Egyptian and he hides the body in the sand. Moses had this privileged life. You know the story of Moses. He was an Israelite. The daughter of Pharaoh found him. He was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was raised in the house of the most powerful man in Egypt. He had social standing. He had political standing. He had um, authority in that culture. And Moses trades it all in in one moment. He, he could have gone to Pharaoh and talked about how the Israelites are being mistreated, but he takes matters into his own hands, and he murders a guy. And how Moses responds is he thinks that that failure is final. He doesn't return to Pharaoh. He doesn't return to his upbringing. He doesn't return to his family. He becomes a fugitive. He runs off. The Bible says that he runs off to the desert of Horeb. And he gives himself a life sentence in the desert of Horeb. And he becomes a sheep herder. He's herding sheep for 40 years. You know why I think Moses became a sheep herder? Because sheep herding is safe. Sheep herding is comfortable. No one's ever going to be challenged to do something great for God as a sheep herder. And maybe for some of you today, you're in the desert. Not you know, physically, but figuratively, but more accurately, spiritually. And you know your past, and you know your mistakes. And what you think is those mistakes and those failures have given you a life sentence. Maybe for some of you... Um, you failed relationally. In your marriage that you pledged to love and honor and respect didn't work out. And you feel like a failure. And you feel like that marks you. 
Maybe for some of you, you just chew through friendships. You don't have any real close friends. You have a bunch of surface-level friends because you get close to people, and then that, that relationship implodes. And what you've realized is the common denominator is you. And so you have, are just content with having surface-level relationships in your life, and you feel like, you know what, I don't know how to be a good friend. Maybe for some of you, it's, uh, you, you failed uh, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and that person broke up with you, and because they said you weren't good enough, you don't believe you're good enough. Maybe for some of you, you were fired from a job, and that's just it's set you back. You've never been fired before. You've never been told that you weren't good enough before. You've never been set on the shelf before, and it's defined you. It's, it's, it's something that you live with every single day. Even if you have a new job now, all you can think about is the job that you lost. Maybe for some of you, you haven't talked to your parents in years. You haven't you know, seen your sister except for holidays. What is the failure that you feel like in your life is final? You went bankrupt. You, you've you know, compromised sexual standards. You had an abortion. You got fired. Like Moses, you've been in the desert for a long time. And here's what we do. We try to outrun God. And we end up exhausted. And most of the time, we end up alone. See, God doesn't take us to the desert to punish us. God takes us to the desert to prepare us. And can I just tell you that sheep herding perfectly prepared Moses for everything that God had in store for him. The problem is if, it, if God isn't on our timing, we think that God is holding out on us. And so we pray for like 24 hours or maybe 36 at most, right? We're like, oh my gosh, God, really? You can't answer me? See, God is more concerned with your character than he is your calendar. And so often we're in the desert, not because God is mad at us, but because God is preparing us to have the character to sustain the dreams that he has for us. And one of the things I've learned in my life is that your failures can't define you if you allow them to prepare you. The failures that you've experienced in your life, they can only be final if you allow it. Because God is a God of redemption. God is a God of second chances. God is a God uh, that, that restores and redeems and takes the failures that we've accumulated over time and uses them. Was it God's plan A for Moses to run to the desert of Horeb? I don't think so, but he used it anyway. I think that God's plan A was he strategically placed Moses in a place of power in the house of Pharaoh. And what did Moses do? He messed it up. Did that mess God's, up, God's plan up? It delayed it by 40 years, I think. But I don't think it messed it up. See, we, we might be able to delay God's best for us, but if we allow God to leverage our failures, we can never stop God's best for us because God is always redeeming. He's always given us second chances. The second lie is your weaknesses make you weak. Exodus chapter four, verse 10, it says this, but Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I, I get tongue tied and my words get tangled. See, the greatest enemy of our faith is not disbelief. I think actually disbelief is a great friend of our faith, which sounds a little controversial, but I think it's as we wrestle with things that we're not sure that we believe in, God shows up most powerfully. So when we just give Sunday school answers that we'd give no room for our faith to grow, the greatest enemy of our faith is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of our insecurities, fear of our weaknesses, fear that, that will breed insecurity and it begins to rob us of the second chance that God offers for us. Look, look how this 
This progresses all the way through the chapter. I mean, Moses is confronted by God. He's invited into this holy moment with God. He's given a miracle by God of this burning bush and God's audible voice, which very rarely happens all throughout the Old Testament. God directly speaks to Moses. He calls him by name. He gives him an amazing assignment that has eternal consequences. And here's Moses' response. Who am I that I should go? Chapter 3, verse 11. What is your name? Who should I tell them? Chapter 3, verse 13. What if they don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 1. I'm not a very strong communicator. Chapter 4, verse 10. Please send someone else. Chapter four, verse 13. Have you ever been in a place where you sit in this room and you feel like God is prompting your heart? You feel like God is challenging you to trust him in deeper ways, but then there's this other voice in your heart, in your mind, in your soul that says, whoa, I'm not qualified for that. I'm too weak for that. I don't have what it takes for that. You're not as outgoing as your sister. You're not as smart as your brother. You don't make as much money as your neighbor. You didn't get the promotion like your coworker. You can't have kids like your best friend. Your marriage didn't survive like you prayed it would. You see, when, when we look at our life so often, all that we see is what isn't. When God looks at our life, all he sees is what can be. Because he doesn't look at you and see you. He looks at you and sees him. What we see in this story is this is not a story about Moses and all that Moses isn't. This is a story about all that God is. Look how God responds all throughout chapter 3. I have seen, verse 7. I have heard, verse 7. I am concerned, verse 7. I have come down, verse 8. I have seen, verse 9. I am sending, verse 10. And then in verse 12, he finally says, Moses, I'm going to be with you. You're going to have my presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I think if you grew up in the church culture that I grew up in, you've been conditioned to believe that if you have doubts, don't talk about them. If you have failures, suppress them. If you have uh, issues, pretend that you don't. If you're not happy, pretend that you are. Whatever you do, don't allow people to see any ounce of authenticity in you because that will make you weak spiritually and only strong people spiritually can really please God. What I see in verse nine of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians is our weaknesses don't make us weak. They allow God to demonstrate his strength through us. And Paul says, I will boast more gladly Not of my strengths, of my weaknesses. It's why the greatest apostle of all times calls himself the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst of everybody. That wasn't for exaggeration purposes. It was so that the grace and mercy of Christ could be boldly shown to the people around him. And maybe you and I don't experience God's best for us. And maybe we don't allow grace to have the power that it longs to have in our life because we're too insecure to admit our weaknesses. And God says, that is the key to unlocking the power that I long to give you. It's an admitting weakness. Your weaknesses don't make you weak. They unlock the strength that I long to give you. The the third lie is this, you'll never be enough. Exodus chapter four, verse one, Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What, What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Maybe... As you've walked with God, maybe you have been distracted or derailed by two small but powerful words that have distracted and derailed lots of disciples of Jesus. What if? What if? What if I become generous and then I lose my job? What if the deal doesn't close? 
What if I choose to date God's way, but then he's not Mr. Right? What if I never get married? What if the market crashes? What if I can't get pregnant? What if we get divorced? What if I'm not enough? That's really the question that we ask, isn't it? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I'm not a good enough dad? What if I'm not a good enough daughter? What if I'm not a good enough wife? What if plagues us more than we care to admit? And I think that's why God says to Moses, I will be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'll be with you if you can't speak. I'll be with you if Pharaoh can't be- doesn't believe you. I will be with you. And God says the same thing to you today. I'll be with you if you lose your job. I'll be, I'll be with you if he breaks up with you. I'll be with you if you get divorced. I'll be with you if the market crashes. I'll be with you if the deal doesn't close. I'll be with you. But what more do you need than God's presence? And so what I want to do as we close is I want to give us three truths that can combat the lies that we're tempted to believe. And the first is this, that God often recruits people from the pit, not the platform. I want you to think about where Moses is. He's not in the CEO succession plan of the nation of Israel. He's way far away from the nation of Israel. They're in slavery. He's herding sheep. He's a murderer. He's a fugitive. He's wanted by the Egyptian government. God doesn't recruit people from the platform. I think we elevate the platform to be this amazing place where God does all of his best work. And there's a lot of platforms that are leveraged really well for God. But I see God do more through people in pits than anybody I've seen him do things through the platform. For those of you that don't know our story, um, in 2002, um, my wife and I started a church. And three years into our church plant, my marriage imploded my ministry imploded, and I got out of ministry for four years. In 2009, I was asked, my wife and I were asked to share our story at Traders Point Church in Zionsville for the very first time publicly. We were really apprehensive to do that, but we felt like God was this saying, hey, would you allow your weaknesses to become my strength? So we were faithful, and we did that. After the service, we had a line of people waiting to talk to us until four in the afternoon. We were at the church till 4 o'clock. We had people take our kids home. And they kept asking us, how did you do that? Give us some marriage advice. And I just thought, did you just hear the question or the, the, the message that we just gave? We're poster children of jacked upness. That's what we can give you. Here's how not to be married. Here's what to do if you don't want your marriage to survive. Here's how to mess up your life royally. That's what we're good at, okay? So if that's the type of, you know, the type of advice you want, I can give that. And what I began to realize is that When you and I share our weaknesses, it gives other people an opportunity to say, me too. And me too may be the most powerful word you ever hear from someone. Oh, you went through a divorce? Me too. Oh, you're struggling financially? You went bankrupt? Me too. Oh, you you struggle with addiction? Me too. Oh, you were abused when you were a kid? Me too. That God doesn't choose people that are on platforms to be used by him and be trophies of his grace. He's cho- he chooses people who have been messed up and failed and fallen short and missed the mark. They are perfectly qualified to be used by God. As I looked at through scripture, every single person who ever did anything significant for God other than Jesus was a messed up failure. Moses, Abraham, Noah, David, Peter, Paul, every single one of them realized their failures and allowed God's grace to shine brightly. Now, the second truth is this. God doesn't need ability He needs availability. 
God doesn't need your talents and your gifts. He'll use them, but what he needs most is your heart. He needs you available. About four or five years ago, my wife and I started bouncing around and going back and forth with this idea of adoption. And by going back and forth, I meant she was for it, I was not. And so it just went back. It didn't go forth. Um, it just came back to me and didn't go forth. And so it just kept back and back and back. And I'm like, okay, good, we're good. And here's why. And this sounds, doesn't really sound, I never prayed about it. But here's what I was thinking. I've got a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 14-year-old. I see light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like I'm getting ready to make some money. Like I've just been given and given and given. And it's just debit card, debit card, debit card, tuition, tuition, tuition. Four more years and I'm going to be in the black. And so... Last August, we were, getting, we were like a month out from starting the church, and Trish is like, hey, would you, um, would you pray about going to this foster care class with me? Anytime anyone asks you to pray about something, what they're saying is, God will be disappointed in you if you don't do this. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my gosh, really? You're playing the pastor card to me? I play on that with so many people. And so, so we go to this foster care class, and, and we're considering foster care. And for those of you that do it, you're going to hate me because we decided not to. And, and part of that was because um, our schedule, we travel a lot and speak at different churches, do marriage events, and we were just out of town, and it just was not going to be conducive to a healthy environment for foster care. So we just kind of set that on the shelf. June 1st, like six weeks ago, I get an email from a lady in our church who owns an adoption agency in Zionsville where we live. Actually, she sends me a text message. Check your email. We're at Castleton Square Mall buying a suit for my son to graduate from high school. Again, light at end of tunnel, Okay. So I open up the email. The subject says, would you consider this adoption? I open the PDF, and I show it to my wife in Castleton Square Mall. She gets tears in her eyes. Seven-year-old little girl, nine-year-old little boy. And I said, what do you think? And she's like, well, what do you think? And I said, I think it's spam. And she's not, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I have some love for God. So I text Tina, the lady back, and I said, what, what would we need to do if we wanted to ha- at least have a conversation about this? She's like, fill out this profile by the end of tonight. So we fill out the profile, throw some pictures in there of our family on vacation, send it off to her. She texts me on Friday, the birth mom wants to talk to you tomorrow. I'm like, oh, time out, my friend. Like, I don't, I don't think we can do Can we have the weekend to pray about it? Like, Jesus, it took Jesus three days to rise from the dead. Can I just pray about this for like three days? So, um, so we talked to the birth mom on Monday. At the end of the conversation, she starts bawling. She says, I feel like you guys are supposed to adopt my kids. I'm like, we're on our first date. You're at the altar, all right? Well, there's a lot of gap here. We meet him on Wednesday, that Wednesday. We meet him again on Saturday. On June 24th, three weeks and three days, after we got a text message saying, check your email, we signed legal documents to adopt these two kids. Jalen and Janiah. Just looking at it, it gets me emotional because I think I have a gift of telling people what God wants for them. I've dedicated my whole life to ministry. God didn't need my gifts, He needed my availability. He needed me to say yes. And if I could sum up discipleship in one statement, discipleship is really just saying yes to God more than you say no. It's giving more of your heart to God every time he asks you. See, I think we look at people and we think, man, they've just, 
take such huge risks of faith. People look at this and they're like, oh my gosh, you guys are like taking huge leaps of faith. I I get it, but most of the time a huge leap of faith is really just a culmination and a summation of small steps of obedience. It's obedience after obedience after obedience. God said, hey, move to Indiana and start a church. Okay, this was our next yes. I don't know what your next yes is, but Moses eventually had to say yes. He had to say, I will go. And maybe for you, it's my time is available to you, God. My career is available to you, God. My money is available to you, God. My dating life is available to you, God. My marriage is available to you, God. My talents are available to you, God. I'm all in. I think we get hung up on our ability, and God says, I can't do anything with your ability if you're not available. If you're overscheduled and stressed out, I can't do anything. So once you set your abilities on the side and just give me your time, just give me your yes. Last thing as we close. God's grace is at its best when second chance receivers become second chance givers. There's another variation of tag. That's one that I love. Freeze tag. You guys know what I'm talking about? Freeze tag? Freeze tag is the best tag. Freeze tag is the best tag for people who get made fun of. People who get eliminated early. For people who aren't that athletic. Because freeze tag is the goal of freeze tag isn't just to eliminate someone, it's to tag them back in. It's to unfreeze them. It's to say, hey, you were on the sidelines, but you're not on the sidelines anymore. I love freeze tag. Two and a half years ago, I sat across the street with your pastor talking about a dream I had for a church planting movement in the city of Indianapolis. Josh got tears in his eyes, and he's like, I want to be a part of something like that so bad. And so together, uh, with a couple other folks, we started Multiply Indiana. That's where it was born, at Einstein's. December of 2015, two weeks after this building opened, my wife and I stood on this stage, and Josh introduced us and Hope City for the very first time. And this is a picture of that morning. I was skinny and less tired then. My wife was smiling then, but now we have a church plant and five kids. (laughs) What you see is an announcement. What I see is tag, you're back in. You know why? Because the church I started in 2002 is Genesis Church in Noblesville. And I had given up on ever being used by God in this city again. And Josh stuck his neck on the line and said, I'm in. I believe in you. And you know what happened in March? We launched services. There's over 200 people that go to our church every single week that are worshiping right now. And you know what happened in March? We had our very first baptism service. We were introduced and we started baptizing people who were far from God who came into a personal relationship with Jesus. And God has been using Multiply Indiana to play freeze tag in this city. See, there's something powerful that happens when you don't eliminate people, but you tag them back in with the grace of God. Lives are changed. Hearts are transformed. Every dollar that you give, 35% of that goes outside of this church. And it's affecting people that have no hope outside of a relationship with Christ. They have believed that their failure is final. They believe that their weaknesses make them weak. They believe that God can never use them again. And this is a freeze-tag-playing church. 
And so if you're sitting on the sidelines and you felt like God could never use you, can I just say, tag, you're back in. You're unfrozen. God doesn't need your ability. He doesn't care about your past. He needs your availability. He needs your heart. Maybe for some of you, you have forgotten the power of saying yes to God. And God is saying, hey, would you tag your ex-wife back in? Would you tag your boss? Would you tag your sister that you haven't talked to in years? Would you take the grace that I've given you and would you become a grace giver? Because that's when grace is at its best. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you don't just give us one chance, you give us multiple chances, that you are a grace-giving, freeze-tag-playing God. And God, for those of us that are on the sidelines and we think that our best is behind us or we've missed out on your best for us, would you just remind us that we're all in need of a second chance and that's what you offer freely. So we love you, God. And we give you our ability and our availability. In Jesus' name.